0: Welcome to the Animal Law podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan and on this episode we're going to be covering something really different and I think it really opens up a lot of possibilities to create change for animals for those many many lawyers ...who don't do litigation. I mean, most of us don't do litigation. So my guest this week is David Ebert. He is the co-founder of the Animal Defense Partnership, which, in addition to being of interest to lawyers who want to create change, and I think it's of serious interest to lawyers, it may be of greater interest... To those of you who aren't lawyers, but who either run or work for -for not-for-profits or dream of starting one, and maybe you're a bit intimidated by some of the requirements. So if you're intrigued, you should be. Listen to this episode. Before we get to it, I just want to mention that I hope you are also checking out the Our House podcast, which, of course, I co-host along with Jasmine Singer if you have any thoughts about running for office, you won't want to miss my interview on episode 615 with Pearl Brunt, who is running for a town council seat in Pittsford, New York, on a platform that is really rooted in her commitment to sustainable plant-based food advocacy. Very, very cool stuff. Also, I really, really loved my interview with photographer Isaleshko about her extraordinary book, Allowed to Grow Old which features photos of farmed animals in sanctuaries. And these animals are, of course, pretty much the only members of their species who are ever allowed to grow old. And these photographs are so beautiful. And she's such a thoughtful person. So please, please, please... Don't miss a four-episode series setting forth the audiobook version of the new book Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, which Jasmine edited and which is a collaboration among Our Hen House, Sentient Media, Lantern Publishing, and Media, and Encompass. This is such an important and timely book. Uh, you and, and if you don't feel like sitting down and reading it, you can just go to Our Hen House and you can listen to it. Each chapter is, is read by the authors, so really, really a great treat. So I'll just take one more moment to ask for your support for the Animal Law Podcast and the Our Hen House Podcast. If you're in a place where you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate, and there you can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make a one-time donation in any amount, and we would be so grateful. Let's get to this interview now. David Ebert co founded the Animal Defense Partnership, which can be found at animaldefensepartnership.org, with Joel Litvin in 2016, after a long and successful career in commercial litigation. Before retiring from that practice in October 2019, David litigated complex commercial matters and also served as outside general counsel to several small and mid sized companies. Now, In addition to helping many, many animal protection organizations through the Animal Defense Partnership, David is also a member of the Pro Elephant Network, Rowdy Girl Sanctuary's Rancher Advisory Coalition, the Board of Advisors for Terramar Research, and the Advisory Board of FACE, i.e. Free All Captive Elephants. He will be joining me right after this. I want to tell you about an amazing service for anybody who's practicing animal law or interested in animal law. The Brooks Animal Law Digest is a premier free online publication dedicated to offering in-depth and up-to-date coverage on today's most important animal law and policy issues. Published weekly as a collaborative effort with Harvard Law School's Animal Law and Policy Program, the Digest is a Brooks Institute service to the animal protection community. It can be like having a full-time lawyer on your staff researching and reporting to you on U.S. current legal developments related to animal protection issues. This digest is a resource for anyone interested in learning more about the field of animal law, either as a high-level overview of weekly developments for those who are focused on specific work, but nevertheless want to stay aware of other actions, or as a jumping-off point for digging into a specific current issue in the field. Features include allowing you to compile updates by category, search by key terms, and each issue contains links to background materials that will orient the reader around that specific issue. There are weekly highlights as well as quarterly summaries. You can subscribe to the Brooks Animal Law Digest at thebrooksinstitute.org. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, David.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm thrilled to have you because it's so different from almost all the interviews I do, what you're doing is so important. And if anybody just looks on your website at your client list, they will see how important it is to the movement. But first, since this is different and the work you do is different than uh, most of my interviews, can you just give us kind of the elevator speech of what you do for your clients and perhaps what you don't do, but what people think you might do. And, and then we'll get, spend the rest of, of the time kind of getting into details.
1: I do this myself. People fall into this assumption that we're animal rights or animal welfare lawyers, which we're not. We leave that to others, ALDF and other terrific organizations. What we're trying to do is to provide the same legal services that any organization would need to the animal protection organization so they can take that part of their, the things they have to worry about, they can take that out of that. They don't have to pay for it and they're going to have competent representation where I could have picked any industry and we'd be providing the same services. You know, it's just that this is my, this is what I'm interested in. And why don't we have over a hundred clients, which is hard to believe. And they come to us and new ones come to us and they have some sort of organizational or legal issue that they need addressed. And we, we're their outside general counsel. They can come to us with any, any kind of issues and um, we can either solve it or address it in-house or we have a network of lawyers outside. And that's the goal of this is just to get good legal services to these organizations so they can go do the things they do best while we're doing what we do best for them.
0: Yeah. And as I I think I already said, it's incredibly valuable work. I mean, not only can people get themselves into trouble if they don't have the right advice on these issues but you know they can just waste a lot of time and effort trying to find people to help them. So I know you you mentioned you have a network of attorneys and I think these are largely volunteers and I think you also do some work in-house. Am I am I right about that? And can you just give us kind of a picture of who your lawyers are and how you vet them and how you supervise them?
1: Sure. So so we started this my partner and I Joel Lichten and I started this thing. And the goal was to do, we wanted to do some legal work for some organizations and and help out where we could help out. And I had been doing some of this and started to meet people who could introduce me to to organizations. And you start to meet people and you say, uh, would you like free legal services, which is a very, very easy sell. And we would, people get referred to us. And almost immediately, it became clear that Joel and I were not going to be able to handle the work. We just didn't, I mean, I was, I was in full-time practice and it was just too much to do. And there, there are areas that I don't practice and that we needed help with. So I went to all of the mega law firms in New York that you've heard of and told them what I was doing and told them that, or asked them, would they be interested in, in doing pro bono work for us? They all have pro bono departments and they're always looking for interesting work to do. And a number of them said, Our people are looking for animal work. So they were very happy to be involved in, 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 in working with us. And we have, I don't know, maybe have 15 firms at this point signed up. And that was difficult because it was, it was cumbersome. And to go to a, a law firm of 600 people and and try to get them to do or or agree to do some project, no matter how small it is. So there's a whole process and 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 vetting and executive committee and this committee and 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 by the time that you get approval to do it, it's just it's been too much work on our end, and it's often frankly too late. And we did this, and we and and the firms were great. It is it, not it's not the firms weren't doing what we needed, but they were they were terrific. We had. You know, world-class lawyers working for our clients, which wouldn't otherwise happen, and it served the purpose then. But then we just started to think that we have to do this, we have to do this ourselves in house, and that way we could we can control who's doing the work and we know the person who's doing the work. It gets done. It, it's 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 like your lawyers in a law firm, and one lawyer asks another lawyer down the down the hall, "Can you please do this?" And they say yes, and they they do it, and that's a lot different than having to go to, to firms and ask who's interested in doing it and cl- conflicts and all that. So we we hired about a year and a half and we hired at first part-time attorney, which was unimaginable at the time. I mean, just, I just didn't think this is the way this thing was going to go. And she, she was terrific. And she did a great job of sort of getting us organized. If it were left to me and Joel, we wouldn't be as far along as we... What, as we are with, her name was Mary Dolka. And she did, she did a terrific job for us, did the legal work. We were also still getting, um having to get outside help. And so we decided to hire a full-time lawyer, which also was, I just, I just didn't see this as, I, I didn't plan this quite this way. And my ultimate fantasy is to have, it's a law firm. And We have people supervising lawyers and we have lawyers doing the work and and we're self-contained and you have enough clients and enough lawyers that this thing becomes an institution so that it's going to be there for, well, certainly past me, but it's going to become sort of the reflex. If you have a legal issue, okay, these are are people to call. You don't have to hunt around and think, oh, who am I going to get? Here's a place where you go to to get these kinds of commercial legal needs met. And we have the one full-time lawyer, Andrew Serene, and we're going to have more. And it's always a challenge to raise the money to hire more, but that's where we're up to and that's where I'd like to go.
0: But but currently you're using volunteers, isn't that right? Some. Okay. Most of your work is in-house? Yes. Okay. I didn't realize that.
1: If somebody comes to us with a tax issue, we're never going to have a tax lawyer. And tax is the last thing I'm going to get near you. So we go outside and we have people who we can say we have a tax problem. There, there are other kinds of issues that we do work in, in getting organizations in the U.S. that have an office in the U.S., a 501c3 in the U.S., and they do work in Africa. And there's a process to get work out of, get money out of the U.S. and go to Africa. I could read what you're supposed to do, but that's the kind of thing where we say we got to get somebody who really knows this, and and we did. Of course, yeah. And we did it, and it goes that way. But the goal is to let's do what we can do in house.
0: That is something I didn't realize, and and you mentioned raising money, and uh, all of your but all of your services are provided for free, right? They are. You, you raise money to uh
1: We do. Um, yes. Are you
0: not for profit? We are. Okay. That kind of gets rid of the details though. Maybe we'll go into a few more later, but let's talk about the work. And I was saying this before we started recording, but you sent me a, a long list of the types of work you do. And I, I do want to go through them, but you know, normally I, I, I interview people who are litigating cases. They send me the papers. I'm familiar with the case. Right, and sure. I've never done transactional work and I'm fl- flying, pl- a, a bit blind. The non-lawyers listening are, like, shocked that lawyers don't know everything. <laughs> and the lawyers listening are all nodding, I assume, except for a few really exceptional ones. All right. uh, you know how how everybody expects you to know whether you can park here because you're all lawyer? Criminal.
1: Everybody, <laughs> criminal work. Everybody of comes to you for your cousin for criminal. Of course. You got arrested. You're in jail. No and no more...
0: You have to have the expertise and the connections to do criminal work. You do not want somebody who's just making it up.
1: I know no more than anybody else who watches Law and & Order and those other shows. <laughs> and about. Actually,
0: I've done criminal work. And if you watch Law & Order, you, you know, most of what you know is wrong. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, what I'm trying to make clear is this is not really my area. And so I need your help here to uh, go into detail. But... You know, some of these things I am pretty familiar with. And one thing I'm familiar with, since we did it for our hen house, is forming the entity, like people who are starting out, people who want to start a, a not-for-profit corporation and have no idea how to start. And and I imagine this is something that comes up a lot. Can you, can, can you tell us what is entailed in setting up uh, a not-for-profit? I know there are two, there, there's more than one step here.
1: It depends on what state you're in. But you're basically filing a piece of paper that says, we want to be a corporation, organization. The two goals that you really want to achieve is to get tax-exempt status from the IRS so that people can donate to your organization and and have it be tax-deductible. And you also have to register in in individual states. But somebody would refer somebody to us and say, this is what I want to do and this is how I want to set it up. Well, they don't know how to set it up. They say, this is what I want to accomplish. And we talked through the different ways that they could do that. And it mostly comes down to you form a nonprofit. We're going to apply for tax-exempt status with the IRS. And you have bylaws. We're going to do bylaws for you. We're going to tell you how to do annual meetings. We're going to explain how you form a board so that there's an operating body and talk about executives, presidents. Do you need them? Do you not need them? How many board members? Do they have to be you know if, if it's if it's an entity and I, I do a fair amount of work in Africa so if it's if it's an entity in Africa and you' and you're setting up a 501 c three in the us basically under the same umbrella you have to know how it is that you do that work between the, the the local organization I'll call it and and the work in in out of the country and that has its own set of circumstances and we have people come to us and say we 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 want to do work in China we want to do work in in Africa, we want to do work in other places in the world. And we do our best to help set them up. And some are harder than others. And some requires trying to find somebody in the, the country that they they want that, to that, that they're operating in and figure out the rules for how they're gonna how they're gonna work together.
0: And I mean, in addition to doing things internationally, you mentioned that these rules vary state to state. Do you handle clients from all 50 states?
1: We do. In terms of the incorporations, most states have a very good website for the Department of, of State, or they call it different things, where people can go online and do this themselves. It's not a difficult process. It's it's you have to know how to do it and what you're looking for. But it's um, each state has that. And we we will go to we will help people set up an organization in whatever state they want to, which usually ends up being Delaware or New York or California.
0: Do you advise people as to the advantages or disadvantages of Delaware and New York and California and, and, and other states? Because I know some, they do have different uh, qualifications.
1: Yeah. California is kind of its own universe.
0: It always is in every area of law.
1: In, employment law there is um, is great if you're an employee, not so great if you're an employer, Delaware makes it about the easiest to operate as, a, as an organization a, a, a nonprofit in, in Delaware and it's a very um, organization friendly place to be organized and a nonprofits for profits New York is, is is pretty similar to to Delaware and and frankly it doesn't end up making a whole lot of difference in which states you're organized as long as you're organized and complying with whatever. requirements are for filing annual statements and paying a a fee. And if you want to operate substantially in another state, if you registered in New York and you want to operate substantially in in Oregon, you can register with the Department of State in Oregon so that you're authorized to do business there.
0: Yeah, that is actually a fair, I mean, one of the things that, that We're always worried about is raising money in other states, and um, and whether we have to when when and whether we have to register in other states, and and it's a pretty complex process. How do you advise people to deal with that issue?
1: It's it is a complex process, and we were helped very early on in that in figuring out what states require registration, and what states can you do a little bit of fundraising without registering? What states you have you can do no. And we had a firm sort of do a survey for us that tells us in what states people have to register in which states they don't and what the thresholds are for having to register. And there were organizations that do this better than we can do it. And, and but you, but you get your clients that organization and they know what they're looking to do. And the mechanics of it are filing papers and making sure you're saying the right words. We refer those people to the organizations that do the registrations. But that's a real issue, and and we've had instances where somebody's raising money in one state and they get a letter from the
0: A very frightening letter, it's I might a very add. Frightening a ver- letter. terrifying letter.
1: Yeah, it, it is. And the, you know, the first thing you say is deep breaths, deep breaths, deep breaths. We're gonna be able to handle this. And and we do, there are some states that are difficult in that they require audited financial statements every year. So what nonprofits can afford to have. So we try to work around that, and it depends on the the flexibility of the person who you're talking to at the state, and get them in in a position where they're they get past that very scary letter, and they get a different letter that says, "Okay, you're you're okay. We're gonna we're gonna let you fundraise here." But it's 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 an issue that that comes up a lot.
0: Yeah, I imagine a lot of the issues you deal with are things that just really frighten people because you can run yourself into a lot of trouble
1: all the time.
0: What, so somebody comes in and they want to form an entity. They're not established yet. So how do you decide who you're going to take?
1: I want to take everybody.
0: I knew you were going to say that somehow.
1: <laughs> if, if some, and I get, it's hard for me to say no, but if an entity comes in or, or a person comes in or a group of people come in and they say, we want to do this animal protection work. And it's an either advocacy or it's diet change or it's running a sanctuary or a, a rescue. Um, and we talk to them about what they want to do. And if it seems like it's a, it's a real thing then then, we'll help them. And we don't make any distinctions based on how much money an organization has or doesn't have. I mean, nobody has money at the beginning. But the goal is that we're not... This is for anybody who needs it, whether you're the largest organization in, in, in the U.S. or the smallest. The largest one is still paying legal fees to somebody, right? So if we can take that burden off of them, there's more money in theory for them to take that money and use that to save the animals directly, But if somebody's serious and they come to us and they have a real idea, we work it through with them. And some of them, they end up working well and some of them don't work so well. But our attitude is if you want to do this work, we want to help you do this work.
0: Yeah, I love, I really love that attitude. Thank you. I know that we've talked about entity formation, but one of the other things on your list of things that you do is a way of avoiding entity formation and that's getting a fiscal sponsorship. Can you explain to people how that works? In case they don't want to, they're not sure. ready to start They're not-for-profit. So you,
1: you have an established uh, nonprofit and this mechanism, of fiscal sponsorship, where you can start operating, essentially borrowing the, the the established entity status as tax exempt is the main thing. So you don't have to get your you don't have to set up a 501c3 you can have a fiscal sponsor and the fiscal sponsor raises or, or people donate the money to the fiscal sponsor who then grants money to the organization and they usually take a fee I'm not a fan of that other than to get yourself initially set up and my feeling is if you're going to do this don't be don't be beholden to anybody else don't have to comply with somebody else's vision or ideas of what you're going to do do it do it yourself you know we'll help you if the with anything that that the fiscal sponsor would help you with other than we're not we, we we do fiscally sponsor a couple organizations but that's not that's not what we're here to do i i just think being independent and being able to and if somebody comes to me and i'm fiscally sponsored i have to say go contribute to the fiscal sponsor i can't take the money because I'm not tax exempt, but if you if you give the money, then they'll give the money to us. If I'm a donor, I, I, I want to, I want it to be direct. I want to give it to the person or the organization who I know, who is is, is getting the money, and it's not this feeling like the money disappears into some vacuum and then it gets to, to your organization. Maybe it, it's a perfectly viable way to operate uh, fiscal sponsorship, but I'm really not a fan beyond. Starting the process and getting yourself and figuring out if what you're doing is is, is going to work and people are going to want to have that service that makes sense. But um
0: Well, I think that the work that you're doing by helping people get over their fear of starting the entity and thinking that's so impossible and so difficult, uh, you make it much more possible for people to avoid taking that first step of fiscal sponsorship. They can just launch and they have somebody helping them form the entity. They can just go form the entity.
1: Yes. And we have people who come to us who have fiscal sponsors.
0: They want to do the next step. Yeah.
1: And they want to to understand how to transition from that, from being in that context to having their own 501c3. Yeah,
0: that's great. So another thing that you put down, which, you know, everybody I think is in favor of um, is litigation avoidance (laughs) (laughs) because who wants to litigate? That's just kind of a really big bucket. <laughs>
1: like, it's a huge bucket.
0: A whole lot of things and a whole array of different types of advice. So can you just give us k- kind of an example of some of the types of things that come up? I know, you know, we have to, avoid, I should, I should have mentioned already, we can't, avoid, we can't talk about too many like actual situations since you're, you know, your clients come to you in confidence. So, so that's, you know, war story. I don't expect war stories, but. Unless they're very, very disguised war stories.
1: So I, I was a commercial litigator for thirty-three years. That's what I did. I did litigation that entire time, and and by the tenth year, I was doing it. I wanted to avoid litigation. It's it's just, <laughs> it's just it's just it's a terrible thing for clients. The way it works is is fees are ridiculous. The process is ridiculous. And what I did a lot in private practice was to. People come with a problem, and they want to sue. Everybody wants to sue, and you try to work through. Well, no, you don't want to sue. We're not going to sue until that's the last thing. And you got this nasty, scary letter. So instead of writing back a scary, nasty letter in response, which is just going to escalate and lead to litigation, maybe, maybe we'll call up the the, the attorney on the other side and talk to them about what's really going on. You know, our clients get subpoenaed and our goals to comply with the subpoena without getting our clients sucked into the to the lawsuit as 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 a party. Because I've done this my entire career and can kind of see what things are going to lead to a problem, a real problem, and what could I have done to avoid getting into this position? Because once you're, you're litigating you lost you're lost. Whether you win or lose, you lost. And so I I like to think that I have a, a an ability to sort of see what's coming and having done this enough to know how you stopped it from happening. You can't always, but that that's the first, first way to approach this is don't want to litigate. And that's a, that's a big relief to people. And um, I don't want to do it because I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it because it's too, it it takes up too many resources, too much of your resources to litigate. You know, you need, you need, number of people to go through a billion emails that we all have and i just i wanted to leave that to people the organizations that do that and that's what they do when people come to me and there's something to litigate i refer them over and but i do take avoiding litigation pretty seriously i I see how people get sucked into it and they don't have to and i we try to help them avoid that by taking some other route than you know just writing back the same kind of we hate you we're going to destroy you letter, which which we can write, but it doesn't, it usually doesn't uh, amount to much.
0: Are we talking at all about, I mean, obviously there are groups, and you mentioned one earlier, ALDF, but groups that do strategic impact litigation. Yes. Are you talking about that you would like to see people avoid, I mean, not in every case, presumably, but, you know, try to avoid that as well? Or are you talking more about I don't know, getting sued because, uh, I don't know, it's something to do with your lease or something. Well, well
1: that's exactly right. I, this has nothing to do with organizations that, that advocate and bring litigation as a strategic mechanism. This is your three people sitting in a room or sitting at your desks in different parts of the country. And... Somebody writes your letter and says, you, you didn't pay me for this or you didn't do this. or you, you, you somebody at your place, some, a volunteer at your place hurt one of our people. And basically, what are you going to do about it? Those are the kinds of things. Breach of contract. If we have somebody, we have a vendor who we're working with and they take money and don't deliver the hay or whatever it is they're delivering, that, that's the kind of thing that if we were going to do any litigation, that's the kind of litigation we would do. But I don't want to do it.
0: <laughs> so you will avoid it at all costs. I mean, and you don't, do you hand off litigation? Um, if it does come to that, do you, you hand it? You, you don't do the, the litigation no. yourself. That's not, do you help people find somebody who might handle it if worse comes to worse?
1: Yes. And sometimes you can find somebody and sometimes you can't because it's always going to be a pro bono case, right? No nonprofit is going to have the money to pay law firms understand what the what the, what the investment is in, in any litigation. Yeah. and it's, it's and hard the to unpredictability
0: you know a small thing can turn into a big thing
1: it always turns into a big thing I mean not, nothing is smaller than I thought it was going to be ever <laughs> in litigation <laughs> yeah and it's just the nature of it it's just the nature of it and and either there are specific attorneys that we have worked with that I ask if they want to handle this thing or again I'll go to alDf to get them to somebody who can evaluate the case for them and and i don't know i'm not an animal i'm i'm not an animal rights lawyer i'm not an animal welfare lawyer i don't know i mean i know generally the the statutes that apply but i don't know the, the, the details that these people know and would be able to seize on immediately so it's it's just it's we, we need to stay away from it
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, money. Always an important topic to everybody who wants to help animals. Fundraising. Like what's your basic information that you want to give to, let's say, a new organization about what they have to be careful about with fundraising?
1: A lot of it is this registration issue. So so we all operate all over the country, right? We have a website that goes all over the country. So what does that mean for for being being in New York and raising money in in, in some other state? And how does that work? And at the outset, if you're setting up a 51c3 and you you're filing to have tax exempt status, you can accept donations at that point and they'll be tax deductible to the donor. Right? So you don't have your tax exempt status yet, but you're seeking it, you can do that. The disaster is if the IRS says no, you're not going to be, we're not going to grant you this status. And then all those donors who made tax exempt. Donations have a problem, and the organization of—I've never worked on anything where the, the, the lawyer said, "No, you can't be a nonprofit and and tax exempt." But I, I can't tell people so much strategy on on how to go out and get money. We have our own task to do that for ourselves. Right? No, and,
0: you can. Like every lawyer, you just anticipate disaster, and and that's
1: that's <laughs> that, 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 that's it. And it's what
0: we spend and, our lives doing. <laughs> right? And I,
1: I, I ask them if they're going to send out some email or something soliciting funds, I ask to read that first so that I know that they're not saying something in the context of, of fundraising that they shouldn't be saying or promising something or or giving information that's incorrect. So we try to get a hold of it at that stage and avoid the problem that's going to come if they do if they do take a misstep.
0: So in addition to compliance with various requirements, you also seem to help organizations with management issues, which seems just incredibly important, because how many organizations have fallen apart based on poor management and not knowing what, um, what what they need to do vis-a-vis employees and what are best practices and and resolving disputes? Can you just talk a little bit about that kind of work?
1: Sure. It was one of the very surprising things to me when we started this, is how many organizations have a have a pretty serious problem internally on what they're doing and how they do it. And are they complying with the basic rules? That That's, you know, that's easy, but how they're relating to each other, how boards relate to, to, to officers. And we, we try to get them on track to set that up in the proper structure. Sometimes they, they need a consultant who does this, and we're not a consultant who does this work to really go in and interview people and find out why something's not working. But I really am surprised at how many organizations have an employee problem or volunteer problem. And we see a lot of it and issues that come up in any organization, but somehow because there are a lot of volunteers involved in, in animal protection, nonprofits, there tends to be more problems and, and people don't know how to handle an employee or a volunteer who's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. How do you throw somebody out? How do you fire somebody? And, um, how do i make this better is is something we get we get a whole lot of
0: yeah I, i'm really not surprised i mean passions are so strong within within any movement but you know really within the animal rights movement and people are so beleaguered by you know the huge the huge avalanche of 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 suffering and and it it really does start to interfere with human relations and and treating people as you should so i think it's something Reminding people of that and trying to manage that, I think, is very, very valuable work.
1: From my perspective, this is really hard work. And part of that is we're all doing our part and that's satisfying. And then you look into the larger, larger world of what's being improved or not being improved with animals, and you think, how are we ever going to get this done? And that's something you have to, you have to overcome. It's really hard work. And people who come to to, to, to volunteer or work at, at sanctuaries or rescues tend to be out of the, they're, they're not in the center. They tend to be right or left of the center, but they're not in the center. And they have different views and uh, maybe different attitudes about how things should work. And there's a lot of conflict. Yeah, and there's a lot of conflict. And um, many, many organizations deal with this.
0: People are very passionate and have very strong feelings about everything. And and sometimes, you know, I mean, and I'll, I'll own this. Like, sometimes we're not the easiest people in the world. You know, we, sometimes we're not crazy about other humans. <laughs> and we have we have our reasons.
1: Yes. And, and the devotion to the animals, the people I've worked with, is very, very impressive. The extent to which they'll do things to save the animals or protect the animals. They're very serious about it. And that can come with, that can conflict at times with what people want to have happen as opposed to making sure the animals are safe in a a hurricane. You know, people may have a different view. Why are you doing it? Why are you worrying about the animals when you should be worrying about the people who are going to have their houses? That's a whole, that's a whole nother discussion.
0: Yeah. All right. So there, there are two more topics that you had listed for me as the kind of thing you do. And I think they kind of go together. And what is intellectual property protection? and i'm curious to know where you know where that really applies with animal rights groups it doesn't really come to mind and of also of course also the the trouble you can get to into on social media
1: it's a big part of organizations functioning outside of themselves sending information sending advocacy papers they can all be subject to privacy intellectual property difficulties we see on a regular basis, and I saw this in private practice, that people will go on the go on online, and they need a picture of a oh yeah a, a herd of, of and they say <laughs> okay it's it's online so it must be public domain so I'm going to put it on my website and there are lawyers who make their living off tracking those people down and saying you're using you're using my client's work and you got to pay. And that's a tough one to get around. And sometimes you have to pay. You, you used it, and you shouldn't have used it. And they're not going to go away. I work with IDA on the ten worst zoos for elephants they put out each year, and we go through and we fact check and we make sure you have you're attacking in in, in for me a positive way what these zoos are doing. But you got to be careful that you're not you're not getting into defamation with these people. And the tendency is. To be emotional about it and not worry so much. Is this going to get me in trouble? Because I'm saying these things. I mean, I've had I've had groups that will target somebody, some bad guy, and put that person's name, email, and telephone number in in some. Well, that's terrible. You know that that doesn't work well. And any time that I'd like to get my clients to do it this way is if you're going to put something out and it's going to be on social media. You got to you got you to gotta ask us about it if there's anything that's even remotely close, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't, and sometimes they're not so happy when we say you can't do this. I mean, you can do it, but you shouldn't do it. But its privacy has become a very big issue. You're collecting all these names on a website, all these emails. Well, what can you do with them? Can you sell them? Can you give them away? Can you send them unsolicited materials? And that's its own practice area, and. and Anjali, a, a full-time lawyer now that's one of her things that she's very very good at and has done a lot of and everyone needs a privacy policy i'm sort of lumping ip and privacy but every website needs to have a privacy policy and most of the most of them are copied from some other website so, so you know you go to you go to apple and take their privacy statement and, well how bad could it be if apple's is is Using it, but there are things that have to be tailored and things that you have to understand what it is that you're.
0: <laughs> you, you can't just put it up there. You have to actually understand what it says. Right. Yeah. Good point. And
1: that's a real thing. And, and the social media, there are lines that, that shouldn't be crossed, that aren't always obvious on what you could say about people. You could say about what people did. You could say about what people are doing. You always, you know, political issues always are their own problem. But there's all kinds of ways to get yourself in trouble without realizing it. And it's um, to to go to somebody who will say, well, let me look at this first. It's I guess it's another another version of litigation avoidance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I have been astounded sometimes it doesn't happen very often, but I have seen situations where animal rights activists will exaggerate how bad something is, which seems insane to me, because it's so bad out there. And what happens to animals is so horrifying that you really don't have to embellish. You really don't. You don't have to
1: when you don't want to. I mean, I mean, No, think
0: definitely you don't want to.
1: The issue is the outside world has a tendency to see animal activists as crazies. So just pick an easy word. And they don't really pay attention to what they're doing other than save the animals, save the animals. And they, they act in ways that aren't necessarily legal. And and that's the that's the impression the outside world has. I think it's changing, but certainly when I was when I, when I was younger and trying to find organizations to work with, that's an issue. Are are these people just going to go out and, and protest? to no real thoughtful end. Are they just going to go and scream at people? And and I know people have you know organizations they that's not what they're doing and they they have very sophisticated strategies for how they're doing it and they're not but the outside world doesn't see that yeah you know you see the five people outside of a circus or a zoo and they're yelling you know everyone listening like what what what, what are you doing what you guys you guys you you're off track here you you this is not what anybody wants to hear or see
0: and also I think. I mean, you know, there's the whole Caesar's wife thing. We have to be, we can't just be as calm, cool, collected and, and, and wise as everybody. We have to be better because people don't want to believe us. They don't want to think it's as bad as we say, even when we're telling the truth. So yeah, we always have to be better because somebody's going to call us on everything.
1: Absolutely. And, um, it's well said. And and there has to be a view of animal advocates that these are substantial organizations who are doing substantial work, that they have real uh, services provided to them, lawyers, accountants, and that they're operating in the real world. They're not just sending out flyers saying, do X, Y or Z. And y- you have to be better. I mean, you, you put it very well. You have to be better.
0: So you were a litigator for many years. Why did you decide not to pursue animal law litigation? And Because and, yeah, what you're doing isn't really what you used to do. You're doing transactional work instead. Did you just think that this is where I can really make a difference? Because I, th- I think this really is, you are re- I think you're really making a huge difference. Thank you.
1: I didn't want to do litigation. I didn't want to do legislation. I wanted to find some way where it's a very direct cause and effect. And you, this is what I can do well. A lot of people can litigate, a lot of people can fight about legislation, but this particular thing nobody is providing and I can do, you know, without praising myself too much, I did this a lot in private practice. I had clients who would come to me for for whatever issue it was, they don't know what to do with, they would call me and we work it out or figure out how to do it. And that's, that's a really valuable thing to clients. I know that. From from working with them, <laughs> it and really
0: is. It really just to have somebody to talk to when you get something terrifying happening. That,
1: that that's great. So so many times we get a call and oh my god, this happened, that happened, this happened, and you, you just have to back it up and explain to them what's really happening. And people express this this tremendous relief just having the call with somebody who has some experience in this and to tell them what's what what's going to happen for real and what is happening for real. It makes a it makes a big difference is is, is what we see it makes a big difference
0: is there anything that you did in setting this up or in proceeding that you would do differently
1: i would have started 20 years ago
0: <laughs> oh that's a great answer i love that don't we all hate the the part of our lives where we just didn't start working for animals
1: well it's 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 sort of you know i think of it this way if i had started working for animals 20 years ago i would not be able to be part of an organization that provides legal services to other organizations. So because I was a lawyer for 30 years, I'm able to do this. I say, I wish I weren't a lawyer, but if I weren't a lawyer, then I wouldn't be in a position to, to have this organization do what it does. But um, I wish I had been more active, at least um, earlier in my career, and and I made some efforts, but not, not efforts um, that were focused enough.
0: So for lawyers who are listening and say, thinking, I'd like to do that. Would you suggest that they contact you about volunteering? Would you suggest that they kind of do what you're doing and and take on clients themselves? You said you don't really like working with, with a huge span of volunteers. For somebody who's been inspired by this conversation, what should they do?
1: We're always happy to talk to people about options for them, different ways they might be able to contribute from a legal perspective, how we got here, which sort of is the aberration. I mean, going forward, my hope is that people are going to graduate from the schools that have programs. They're going to come work with us or volunteer with us. And you're going to build a, a, a practice area of people who, wanted, who want to do this work. But getting started with it, it's, it's, it's generally volunteering for, for us or other organizations that you know do such spectacular work. If you get involved in those organizations, you're going to see how this thing works. And you're going to see whether this is something you really want to do. And whether you're going to you're 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 satisfied to live on the the dollars that are paid to people who do this work, which is um, for a lawyer coming out of the law school with with debt, I say the pay the pay is bad and the benefits are worse, but you you gotta you you gotta really want to do this and intellectually wanting to do this and actually doing it are um they're two they're two very different things.
0: Well, if people want to pursue it pro bono. As a starting point, do you think that working, either working with your organization or on their own, do you think, one of the issues that used to come up, I remember years ago was that they didn't always, there was always often a question about whether they would get credit. I mean, I don't know whether everybody out there who's not a lawyer understands that you need to get credit for your pro bono work because there's a requirement that you do it. Is, is that still an issue at all? Does anybody push back on that? Whether, because it's not... For, for humans, it's for animals.
1: No, I mean the people contact. The lawyers contact us and say, "How can I help? What can I do?" And if there's something they can do, we we have them, we have them do it within the law firms. Our experience was that they were looking for animal work because lawyers in the in the organization wanted to do this kind of work. Um, so it went well together. But if somebody's interested in in volunteering or or just talking about. At least what, what we've learned in in doing this for six years about organizations and about different opportunities, you know, I'd love for them to email us and we'll do whatever we can to help
0: them. Great, I love that. And this has really been an inspiring conversation. I'm really inspired by by everything you're doing. Is there any advice you have for folks that that I did kind of didn't ask you about, or any topics that you wanted to cover that I that we haven't covered?
1: One topic that we're we're we struggle with and are dealing with directly right now, because we're putting out a new a new website, is do you show the gory stuff that can have a tremendous impact if somebody will look at it? Or do you show the cows in the field grazing? And, and how do you get people to, to look at you and what you're doing without turning them off? In,
0: in, yeah. in a- <laughs> this is like the oldest question, I mean, the struggle that has gone on from the beginning of this movement. If we tell people the truth, it's too horrible. They don't want
1: to hear it. I, I, I remember there was maybe it was direct action everywhere where they set up a, a table on the street and they had um, viewers for people to right. watch. Film. I think
0: F- Farm did that. And then did they? And, and DXA might do it as well. I don't know. But I, I do remember either Farm or a, an organization that spun off from Farm. I think it was Farm.
1: And, and to see the reactions of people who have no idea. And they, they then see if they can endure it. And if they're willing to endure it, um, you, you see in their face a real change. It may not change anything once they walk away, but it's, it's very striking to see how people react and what their response is when they're seeing what's really happening. And I'm very much on the side of, I, I want to show them pictures. They don't have to be gory, but I want to show them pictures where their animals are terrified. And you can see in their eyes, they're terrified or they're, they're just boxed upon one another and this is how we treat them. Or, or pigs are, I, I won't go through the whole thing. I want people to see that. And other people, you know, that's not what we should be doing. And when I started out, I really wanted to show the gore because I didn't know this stuff was happening until I really started looking. I didn't know what, I mean, I knew bad stuff went on, but I didn't know how bad it could yeah, possibly be. Of course. But I, I think showing the, the impact on the animals when they were alive and going, you know, watching the the pig before them gets slaughtered in front of them what that's like for the animal and um that's sort of my compromise is to show the terror i don't know what other word to use the fear and terror that these animals experience in going through this process
0: these are obviously not legal issues but they are the issues that we all struggle with is years and years ago i think we thought if we can just get the information out but um and you know before the fa- before anybody was going into factory farms and and when it was all behind closed doors, but we got the information out. But you know, it's hard to get people to look at it.
1: It's 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 very hard.
0: I'll be keeping an eye on your website to see how you uh, to see how you handle that.
1: Thank you. Well, hopefully, we 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 made the point.
0: Thank you so much for doing this, David. It's really been fascinating, and uh, I, I think a lot of people are going to be inspired. People actually know how to do this stuff, unlike me.
1: <laughs> That's very nice of you to say. And if anybody's interested in Anything that I've said or anything that I should have said, they can email me. They can, they, well, I don't, they can email me. <laughs> me is the best way to get to me. And our email is on our site. It's on the site. It's
0: on the on the website. Okay. Okay, great. I, I,
1: I'd love to be involved in that aspect as well.
0: So thanks so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We will be back next month with a new show. Thanks so much to David for taking the time to tell us about the work of the Animal Defense Partnership. And thanks to Jen Riley for her help in producing the podcast. If you are not already a subscriber, please consider doing so wherever you listen to podcasts. Consider leaving us a good review either there or on Apple Podcasts. And if you are able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org. Thank you so much for tuning in.